0: For those who follow our weekly newspaper and have read along to prepare for today's lesson and read Psalm 39, good for you. Unfortunately, it's Psalm 139, and so I invite you to read along with me now. This psalm is one of the most personal and Poignant confessions of an intimate relationship with God that I find in the whole of Scripture. And I must be honest that I have had a strange relationship with it. From on the one hand, I find it quite scary to think that the ground of our being, God, knows me this well and everything about me. Because there is, to be honest, a part of me that would just as soon remain in hiding. But on the other hand, these words are the most comforting and promising words that I can imagine. May they be for us as well. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in, behind, and before, and lay your hand upon me, and such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me fast." If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light around me become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made And wonderful are your works that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance, and in your book were written all the days that were formed for me when none of them as yet existed. How weighty to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them. I try to count them. They are more than the sand. I come to the end and I am still with you. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. There's the story of the young cub reporter who was sent on his first story to cover the news event of a high socialite wedding at First Church downtown. When he returned to the newsroom, he came in completely dejected, was asked, what's wrong? He shook his head and said, I don't have a story. The groom didn't show up. The point of that, of course, is that we often miss the story that is right in front of us because of the expectation that we have in looking for the truth. This morning, I would like to challenge us on this exact point. We have come here, we suspect, looking for God, hoping that somehow we will find more of God in our community and in, in our worship and in our prayer, and in our preaching. And maybe in our Sunday school classes, maybe in our mission. But the real story is right in front of us. We are here not because we are in search of God. Because really we are here that God has searched for us and found us. For all of human history, we have gotten this fact wrong, backwards. Since humans have been able to keep time through the sun or the moon or through the atomic clock, we have been looking and searching for the knowledge of God in both ways. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of God. This quest for the knowledge of God is clearly started in the symbolic story of Adam and Eve found in the third chapter of Genesis. When they had everything they needed except for one thing, and that was the knowledge of God. There was a tree in the garden that God had said you cannot eat because it held the knowledge of God. Yet the serpent tested them, and they gave in out of their own anxiety because they wanted the knowledge of God. And they ate of the tree. And what they discovered in eating it was not the knowledge of God, but they discovered instead their own humanity and shame and guilt. And at that point they went into hiding behind a tree so that when God walked in the garden in the cool of the evening, he didn't find them there anymore. And so he called out to them, Where are you? And he found them uncovered, discovered, ashamed, hiding. Ever since that symbolic moment, our sense of separation from God has been part of our human condition. It runs all the way through the Bible. It is the penultimate story of the Bible, humanity's search for God. It's in the story of Moses when called to lead Israel into the promised land Moses said to God who met him at the burning bush, Who are you? Tell me your name. Knowing that if he had the name of God, he would have the knowledge of God, he would have power over God, he would have God's essence. And of course God gave him no name at all, but instead, of, instead a verb, I am who I am. It was clear in David, as he worked toward his own understanding of who God was and what he was called to do, it was clear in the prophets that Israel was called to be a child of God even if they did not have full knowledge of God. The psalmist lifts up these words. As a deer pants for the water brooks, as a deer pants for the flowing streams, so does my soul and heart thirst for God. It's the same question John the Baptist dealt with when in prison he, having baptized Jesus, sent word to Jesus, are you the one that we have come to expect or should we wait for another? And it's the question that Paul is dealing with when he wrote in Philippians 3, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. I want to know Christ and the power of the resurrection. My quest has been to know God and to know what God knows. It is the quest of all religions as well as the quest of all science which simply substitutes the idea of knowledge in the place of God. Quest, however, is the same. And this is the story, at least we think, that claims our attention. But I think the real story, the one we tend to miss, is that God already has knowledge of us, knows us fully and completely, better even than we know ourselves and loves us still with an everlasting love. Isn't this the the thing? To be loved and still to be known completely and 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 that the loving other knows everything about me and still loves me? It was the great French philosopher Blaise Pascal who said, I would not be searching for thee if thou hadst not already found me. The ultimate story in the Bible, you see, is not that we search for God, but that God has found us, knows us, and loves us as only a creator, God, can. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me When I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high I cannot attain it. Experiences like this, the sublime, blissful moment of the awareness of being loved by our ground of being by God, Experiences like this don't come often. But when it does, it floods our fallow fields and fills our shallow hearts. This experience is the very vulnerable and intimate personal moment of God's act and revelation to us. It is clearly spelled out in this 139th Psalm. It is words of someone who has come to know God because God has come to know him. Not by processing it through his mind, but by understanding it and embracing it through his heart and his soul and his total being. And until we have such a moment like this, of being known and loved by the ground of our creator God, then we will go on searching for it for the rest of our days. If you read the book Unbroken, I know I've spoken of this before, not the movie. Of course, Hollywood left the whole hinge of the movie out because it was about God. But the book clearly explains that Louis Zamperini, the ex-Japanese prisoner of war who was severely abused and traumatized by one particular warden in prison after having gotten home, was suffering severe PTSD, was drinking too much, was angry, was not communicating, was in hiding. But his wife kept badgering him to go to a Billy Graham crusade, which he did, and nothing happened. And so she badgered him one more time, which he did, and second time, nothing seemed to happen either. And in the middle of the preacher's sermon, Zamperini had had enough, and he jumps out of his pew and starts walking down the aisle. And for some reason, this was his moment, he heard his name called that revelatory moment, that act of God that placed God's hand on his shoulder and said, I know you. Somehow in the midst of that, Zamparini came to understand how deeply loved and known he was by God, and it changed everything about his life. From that point on, he became a preacher who wanted to share that news with everyone else. This moment knocks you to your knees. It is... As I said, a sublime moment of, gre- uh, of, of incredible gratitude and humility. Nothing after that will ever be the same. And it is for us our deepest desire. And I also have to add something that we're also afraid of. So the question for each of us is this that being true, this moment of God's incredible love for us that we become aware of, that being true, how do we attain such knowledge? Remember the psalm, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high I cannot attain it, which is, of course, the whole truth. We cannot attain it. Now, after this morning's sermon... I was told by several in the congregation that this was a quite heady intellectual sermon and how grateful they were for the runaway bunny children's sermon (laughs) that helped make sense of it. And all of that said is that that's probably true which is a complete irony because what I'm about to say next calls all that into question. We do not come to understand this love of God through our cognitive, intellectual headiness in spite of what we good, academic, well-educated Presbyterians might think. It cannot be understood as a fact or information or through our brain this is a Greek thought. This is a Western thought. Understanding as if to know something is to learn as much about it. This kind of knowledge, you see, actually ends up distancing ourselves from God because we are making God an object of our knowledge we are objectifying God and through all of our doctrine and dogma and our hermeneutics and our and our theology and all the ways that we learn more and more about this other God we are in fact moving farther away because our brains cannot understand the knowledge of God in reality if we understood this text like a Jew, we would understand that it's not about cognitive understanding at all, but instead is about understanding a God that acts upon us and reveals to us God's presence. We understand God because God has chosen to help us understand God. God has done something in our life. God has acted in our life. And the Jew understands that then from then on, Our faith is not a cognitive issue. It is now an issue of action, of doing. To know something, you have to do it for a Jew, not understand it. If you want to learn to paint, you can read every single book in the world. You cannot learn to paint until you start painting. Or take anything else. You want to know how to love? How do you be generous? Every virtue that matters, you learn by doing it. The problem with our brains in this sort of Western Greek thought process is that we turn it into our own tool once we have managed it and contained it intellectually, and we use it for our own devices. If you've ever seen that documentary called The Trinity the day after Trinity, excuse me. It's about the American scientists who invented the atomic bomb in World War II. And ironically, Trinity was the name they gave to the very first atomic explosion. Only on the day after that explosion did the scientists stop to analyze and agonize over what they had done. The scary part about the documentary is not the nuclear bomb itself, not even the mushroom cloud, but instead the image of that documentary that revealed these most educated and intelligent scientists, the most educated scientists on Earth who produced this bomb devoting themselves enthusiastically to this demonic end. They appear possessed by a power beyond their control, not the power of the government that brought them together, but the power of knowledge itself. One scientist shared that before the first shot, there was speculation that it might possibly explode the whole atmosphere, in which case the world would, poof, disappear. But the experiment went on as scheduled, even so, the irresistible outcome of the knowledge that made it possible, it led Oppenheimer to say, "...I have felt it myself, the glitter of nuclear weapons, it is irresistible if you come to them as a scientist." To feel it's there in your hands. To release the energy that fuels the sun. To let it do your bidding to perform these miracles. It is something that gives people the illusion of illimitable power. And it is in some ways responsible for all our troubles. I would say this, he continues. What you might call technical arrogance. It overcomes people when they see what they can do with their minds. This is the result, ultimately, of Western knowledge. They wrote a book about it called Frankenstein. But again, in Hebrew thought, there is nothing like it at all. It's not our brains, but our bodies. To know God in Hebrew or to know anything is about relationships. It's about connections. It's about covenants. It's about vulnerability, and it's about intimacy. To consummate your wedding vows is to come to know your spouse. Knowledge comes from doing and deeds of love and service. It's always about the other. And this is the kind of knowledge the psalmist is praising. You cannot understand God in concrete or abstract terms... As a Jew, understanding comes by sensing the living acts of God's concern for us and God's attentiveness to us. We come to know God because God has come to know us really, personally, intimately. We are the object of God's love, not vice versa. No wonder God's love for us is so hard to get in our heads. We can't, can't go there. We can't get our brains around it. But to get it, we have to go to the place that the Jew goes, you see, because it's always about something much bigger. It's about everything. I don't know if you saw the article in the paper last week about a Mandy Lynn Catron's love essay called To Fall in Love with Anyone, Do This. And in it, she refers to a study by psychologists that explores whether the intimacy between two strangers can be accelerated by answering 36 intimate questions. They're divided into three parts. The first 12 are not quite as intimate as the next 12, which are not quite as Intimate and vulnerable as the next 12. First set, for instance, would be uh, Would you like to be famous and why? Or would you constitute, or what would constitute a perfect day for you? The second set, a little more dicey, What is the greatest accomplishment of your life? Or how do you feel about your relationship with your mother? Third set, complete this sentence I wish I had someone with whom I could share. Or, if you were to die this evening with no opportunity to communicate with someone, what would you most regret not having told someone? Why haven't you told them yet? You share the answers to these questions and you get to know them. But that's not the end of the process. The end of the process comes when after answering these 36 questions with this stranger, you then sit and look at each other in the eye, without distraction, for four minutes. Have you ever tried that? To look someone in the eye for four minutes. The point is that to have a relationship takes an enormous amount of intentionality and experience of each other. And if it is God that we want to have a relationship, then it starts with our spending intimate time there too. Through prayer and solitude and silence and meditation. Through scripture reading and study. Through community and fellowship. You see, this is the part we Presbyterians don't always get so good. This personal I and thou pious moment where we kneel down on our knees and 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 ask and pray for this personal experience of God's presence. Sounds way too Baptist. We don't do it well. But we have to to have a relationship. But it doesn't stop there. We can do this all we want. But we also have to do this, for if God loves me this much, then God loves you this much and every other creature in the world. Therefore, we have to be in the presence of God to these people the same way God is. We heal the sick. We care for the poor. We house the homeless. We reach out to others. That's the other part of this. The conservative church will say, this is what it's all about. The liberal church will say, this is what it's all about. Why not both complement each other in both ways? Two polarities of the same truth. Both are needed. And this is my rationale. The third leg of the stool is that we do use our minds to think and search thoughtfully. For God gave us that gift, but it will not bring us revelation. The great poem by Francis Thompson goes, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine waves of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him. But under running laughter, up this hopes I shot and sped from those strong feet that followed, followed after. God knows us. What can I say more than we know ourselves? That part is the story that matters. Now our part is to kneel on our knees in front of that love and to receive it. And in receiving it, then go out into the world and give it to those who most desperately need it. May it be so for each of us, in Christ's name. Amen.